Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, it's good to see you. I know I, I'm, I'm excited. I know it's a long weekend, and so usually when that happens, we get kind of a, a smaller house, but we're pretty packed in today, and I'm, I'm really glad to see you all here. Um, glad to share with you. And, uh, and yeah, here we go. I, 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 will say, I will start with this. I unapologetically uh, listened to punk music all weekend getting ready for this sermon. And there's a reason for that, um, is because, in general, the genre of punk music, and, and the, like, I'm talking like MXPX and Slick Shoes and anybody by Tooth and Nail Records, so it's all out of, like, you, you, see, most of you have no idea who I'm talking about, but it basically is like a whole genre of, like, Christian punk music. It's really good stuff. Five Iron Frenzy. They're from Denver, actually. Like, I worked with their guitarist, Micah, at Best Buy in high school. It was great. Um, yeah. He's doing greater things than me. Um, I'll just tell you that right now. Anyway, the whole point of that, the whole point of that genre of music is saying, hey, wake up, look around, see what's going on. Things are not right. And really, if we want to get into a nutshell of what this what these two chapters of Revelation are about, 17 and 18, it is wake up, look around, things are not right. And so I want you to consider that as we look at this, as we look at this very, very strange and interesting, actually a lot of strange and interesting images that are sitting all over the top of each other. Um, but in order to be able to look at it well, we have to go backward first before we can go forward. In fact, we have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. I'm going to tell you a story out of Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis 11, Um, The flood has already happened. Noah has survived with his family. Um, There's some genealogy following that. And then there's this very interesting story about how humanity keeps moving east of Eden, which there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of metaphysical and theological interestingness about continuing to move away, moving eastward, farther away from the center of God's presence in the place that was your home. But as they keep getting farther, they get to this place called the Plain of Shinar, and they they decide to settle down there for whatever reason, and and they get this idea. You know what? We're going to group together, and we're going to establish ourselves here forever. And and, and rather than kind of just being nomads and kind of like moving all over the place, we're going to make a city. We're going to get together, and we're going to make this city, and it's going to be great. It's going to have, like, everything that we need for security and economic prosperity and safety and everything. And, and it's not just going to be a good city. It's going to be a great city. And at its center will be a, a, a tower, a stronghold, a refuge. So great. It reaches all the way up to heaven. And then we'll be like God. We won't need him to protect us anymore. We won't need him to take care of us anymore. We aren't even going to have to worry about God anymore. We can do this by ourselves. And they get together together and they start building and you guys know how the story goes and that's how we got Japanese and Greek no I they build this place up and it is called what Babel Babel the Lord frustrates the Lord confounds the Lord confuses and Here's the thing. We already know where it is because they've talked about it in the chapter previously. If you look over at chapter 10, where the descendants of Noah settle, they settle in a place that becomes known as 
Babylon. But Babylon has another name for the people of God. Babylon is called Babel, the place where God frustrates and confounds and confuses the best efforts of humanity to live without him. And that story tells us a few things, okay? Especially when we bring it into Revelation. Remember, Revelation doesn't tell us anything new that hasn't already been revealed in Scripture. Eugene Peterson, I don't come to Revelation to learn new things. I come to Revelation to have my imagination refreshed and redeemed by what I see. Okay? And remember, Revelation is less about being the crystal ball of the New Testament where we're like, okay, what's going to happen? And more about an illustrated discipleship guide. How are these images teaching me how to be a faithful disciple of Jesus? How is what I'm seeing calling me to faithful discipleship? Okay? And so when we get to this idea of, of this harlot, this prostitute, sorry kids, I know, it, go ask your parents, um, <laughs> named Babylon. We have to realize that this image is not anchored in a specific time or a specific place. While Jesus is encouraging specific churches, specifically these churches in modern-day Turkey, what we would call Asia Minor, around Ephesus, okay, he is also opening up a reality that is, in effect, timeless. And so this image of Babylon, this woman on the beast, is a snapshot of the capital R reality of God. The universe as God knows it and sees it. And we got to keep that in our mind because if we're not careful, then we're just going to try and either like say that this image is something that's outdated and that John is just a product of his time. And so, of course, he's talking about like faithless people as an adulterous woman because that's what the patriarchy does. Or we're going to try and completely like sweep that aside and we're going to try and figure out who Babylon is today and who the beast is today. And you know what? Let me let me explain something really simple to you. Yeah, of course there's a Babylon today. And of course, there's a beast today. That's because there's always been a Babylon, and there's always been a beast, and there's always going to be a Babylon, and there's always going to be a beast until it's all over. And Babylon is always falling. Has fallen, is falling, will fall until it's all over. You, again, we've got to get these ideas that these images are both we can both find meaning for our current time in them, but they are timeless images, okay? And it also brings about a timeless challenge. Revelation is always working to push us to the edge of decision, and this image is about a decision of allegiances. The world of the Bible is a world of cities, and cities are your identity. They are your allegiance, not just to a geographical or tribal, but also a spiritual allegiance. More than ethnicity, more than geography, they represent a spiritual allegiance. And Jesus is revealing the truth about these allegiances, about citizenships, about why being a faithful disciple in the city is so hard, but why it's so crucial that we are faithful witnesses to Jesus in our cities, in our city, in this city. Why a woman? Why, 
Why a harlot? Why is this here? Again, I want to be careful that we don't just say that, oh, well, okay, this is just working out of a product of our time. It's bigger than that. I want you to look behind me. Take a look at this, this woman here, okay? This statue here, okay? If, if you think that she looks a lot like Athena, like the Greek goddess Athena, you're right, because she is. But she's dressed up in new clothes. She's dressed up in Roman clothes. And her name's not Athena. Her name is Roma. And she is the patron mother goddess of Rome. Interesting. This idea of a patron deity practice, especially of a mother goddess, it goes all the way back to Isis as the mother of the Egyptian civilization, the one who brought it to life and nursed it and cared for it and helped it grow up strong and big, just like moms do, okay? And even Nineveh that we know in, for the Assyrians gets its name from Ninma, who is a goddess of Mesopotamia in origin, who fills this same role as Isis. Why is Athens named Athens? Because Athena produced it. Athena bore it, and she nursed it, and she grew it, and she took care of it till it was big and strong in the capital of the whole world, the envy of everyone. Do you, do you see where this is going? Egypt has a mother goddess that makes it top dog. Assyria has a mother goddess that makes it top dog. Greece has it. Hey, guess what? Now it's time for Rome to dress Athena up in Roman clothes and name her Roma, and now she's the one that is the, the caretaker of, and, and the nurturer and the security and the refuge of all of Rome's power. That's the spiritual side that helps reinforce all of the imperial rule because supposedly Romulus and Remus, the twins that, are, that make up Rome, are not totally human. They're, now they're born from Roma. Oh, okay. See how, the, see how this works? It establishes power. It establishes security. It establishes stability and reach and government and empire and all of those things okay without getting too crazy where's the modern day roma statue the statue of liberty is a fantastic guess and and i would say possibly correct i'm not telling you that I'm not, again, we like our witchcraft civilized these days, okay? Let's just be honest. We do. We don't, we don't talk about deities. We just talk about the almighty dollar. Oh, wait. Right? We don't, we don't talk about, we don't talk about patron deities, but we have a Statue of Liberty that um, honestly looks a whole lot like that. Doesn't her face look a whole lot like that? Okay, it's very interesting to me. Actually, you know what? The entire United States has a patron, as a quote-unquote patron deity. Have you ever heard of Columbia? You ever see Columbia pictures? The woman who's got the, and is holding the torch, and, oh! Oh, we still have that idea sitting on our modern mythology. We don't think about it, but it's still there. She represents all of the freedom, and the liberty, and the power, and the economic prosperity, and, and even the Statue of Liberty. Give me your poor, and your tired, and your huddled masses. Why? Because I'm going to make them great. Or maybe leave them out, and I'm going to make 
the ones that are left great? I don't know, okay? I'm not going to get too political with this, so I'm going to move on now, okay? My point is, is that it's there. My point is that it's always been there, and my point is, is that it's there now. And this is the thing. John and Jesus have something to say about that. This idea of the mother goddess that blesses the city and all its citizens and is worthy of your allegiance. The, 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 the woman as the city. Or the city as the woman. Jesus says the woman's a counterfeit. She's not the mother of all. She's not the mother goddess. She's not the source of power. She's not any of that. She's actually an adulteress. She's a harlot. She's obtained her prestige and her wealth and her power through the selling of herself, using herself and using others to solidify her power base. She looks good on the outside. She wears the best clothes. She's decked out in amazing jewelry. She's drinking really, really expensive wine. She is that model on the cover of the magazine, the celebrity walking the red carpet, the social influencer who has all the stuff and is traveling to all the exotic places and has all the beauty that surgery and Photoshop can buy. Okay? We know who that is. We know who that is. It's, it's the one who is the epitome of what it looks like to live the best life ever. And I don't know who that is for you, but you've got a person. You have an image of a person in your mind that is that best life ever person. but she's a fake. Her clothes aren't hers. She had to sell herself to buy them. The expensive wine she drinks has been run out, wrung out of the lives and the blood of the innocent and the poor in order to fuel her happiness and her luxury. She looks pretty good at first. But the deeper you go, the uglier she gets. And again, if you're worried about any patriarchal undertones, I can flip this to a masculine image, ladies. Babylon has got the body of Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> Thor. There you go, Dean. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Babylon's got the body of Chris Hemsworth and the soul of Harvey Weinstein. Okay, how's that for an image? Okay, everybody went, ooh. Okay, that's what he's looking, that's what he's talking about here. That's what he's saying. Drive that image home into your heart here. Okay? Once you get past the glossy cover, you see the mystery, which is not a puzzle to be solved. It's the hidden things that are revealed in Christ. Written on her forehead. She is Babylon, the city that tried to elevate itself to godlike standards and failed. She is the mother of harlots. She spawns more cities like her who look at her facade and they follow her lead. They eat from her scraps, hoping to grow sleek and strong like she is. She gives birth to abominations, things that disgust and grieve the heart of God. That's her actual title but nobody can see it except through the Spirit of God. And that's what makes John go, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is this? See, because this is about Rome as a city and an empire, and it isn't. Rome isn't the problem. It's Rome's Babylonness that's the problem. 
And it has four manifestations that we see in this image. First, it is this idolatrous, blasphemous worship that is being offered and encouraged by Rome, especially the emperor cult, to turn away from God, take him out of the equation, and exist by yourself. You can do this on your own. And there are other things that you can worship. Okay? That's the first part. Second, the violence that get perpetuated by Rome in order to secure its well-being, especially violence against the saints of God in order to keep the status quo going. Whether that was the Jewish people, whether that is the, the, the followers of Jesus Christ, it is the violence that gets perpetuated that keeps people down in order to secure its well-being. It is the blasphemous self-glorification of Rome and its leaders, elevating itself like Babel. Remember, Domitian, the emperor at the time, has taken on the title Dominus et Deus, Lord and God, and that's a title that only belongs to Jesus. And that's why John's on Patmos, because he, I'm sorry, he's old, but he's still a son of thunder. He is not going to bow his knee to some upstart emperor claiming to be the one that died for his salvation. He's not going to burn incense to Domitian. Are you kidding me? Guy puts his pants on or his toga on one leg at a time. He didn't rise from the dead. I'm not burning incense to him. This self-glorification is an abomination. It is, it is the Babylonness that's overtaking Rome. And finally, the way that they are hoarding their wealth and their greed, and it bloats and distends Rome's integrity. If Rome has all this power, Rome really could make the world amazing. But instead of making the world amazing, they make their own world amazing on the backs of everybody else. And it all comes from the same source, her husband. She's sitting on the beast of the sea, remember? If we remember, he represents the counterfeit Messiah. He's the first horseman of the apocalypse. The control and power and conquest and might that sets itself up in contention with God. Looks kind of like the Messiah, but isn't. This is where the woman is drawing all of her power from. And this is also where she gets the ability to sit upon the many waters, to have influence and control and commercial power over numerous nations and languages and tribes and geography. She's married to the beast, you see. And it's an adulterous union, a counterfeit bride to go with the counterfeit bridegroom. Because that's the key image in all of this. Just like there's a counterfeit trinity that won't stand against the one on the throne and the Lamb and the Holy Spirit, there's also a counterfeit bride, a counterfeit city, Babylon, the city that the Lord frustrates and confounds, that continues to try and set itself up as our home, our seat of power, our seat of blessing, and our place of allegiance. But she is not Zion. She's not the woman who flees the dragon and is sheltered in the wilderness by God and gives birth to the saints. She is not the new Jerusalem, the real home of Zion's children and the true virgin bride of the true bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And just like all the other counterfeits are going to fall, Babylon is falling, has fallen, will fall too again and again and again until the end. 
See, once we have this image explained to us by the angel, more things about this fate and fall of Babylon that happened in chapter 18, and I won't get into all of it, but I mean, they get revealed. But we see all these explanations. Seven heads as hills and kings, ten horns as seats of power and kings to come. And some of these things are direct references to Rome. They're easy to get. And some of them are those symbols of power, wealth, and influence. It's important to remember, again, these, these are a pictorial history not a linear history. John isn't writing this from some easy point of view of reflection, you know, hundreds of years in the future when Rome's already on its knees. He's actually writing this in a prophetic tension of a Rome that's almost at the height of its glory, fully clothed by her seductions, fully drunk on the spoils of violent power, especially violence against the people of God. And the message here is there's more to come than has already been. Not only is Rome as an empire going to last for centuries to come from this time, but the empires are going to keep rising and falling after Rome. More Babylons for every age, new Babylons for every season. And so that makes what we're seeing here very important to understand, not as a puzzle that we need to solve, but a pastoral encouragement that we need to take courage in. Does that make sense, church? Okay, cool. So looking at that, let's just look at some simple facts here. Simple facts. The might of Babylon is always going to seek to wage war against the Lamb and unseat his power because that's what Babylon does. Babylon moves east of Eden and tries to set itself up as a city that doesn't need God. And anything that's going to try and tell it that it does need God, it's going to wage war against. It's what it does. And it will always fail, simply because the beast will never be the lamb. No matter how good of a line he talks, no matter how much power he displays, no matter how much he tries to convince us that that's where our allegiance should go, he will never be the lamb. Ever. It's just the truth of the matter. So take courage, faithful disciples says John, says Jesus, don't be seduced into committing adultery with her and selling your allegiance because she will never be your true bridegroom. Or she will never be your true bride. She will never be be married to the true bridegroom. She will never be your place of refuge. She will never beat the lamb. Ever. Second simple fact. All that power, all that wealth, all that might, All that arrogance is self-destructive. Okay, look down here at the end of um, chapter 17, verses 16. Okay? And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate, naked, eat her flesh, and burn her up with fire. That's exciting. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Like the... See, I love reading these things because you're like, that's in the Bible. Yes, it is in the Bible, okay? All right? If you thought this wasn't an interesting book, think again. But what's the point of all that? Is it just wanton, is it just wanton destruction? No, it's a spiritual truth. Look at it this way. When Rome ultimately gets pillaged in AD 410 by Alaric and the Goths, it took only one week for them to march in from the borders and sack the city. Okay? One, 
Think about how small the Roman Empire would have had to have grown by then. Even if it looked big in geography. Look at how small its influence would have had to have grown. And how little, how, how messed up everything would have been for them to just come in and just say, you know what, we're just going to strike at the heart of the city and we think we can do it. And in a week's time, come from the borders and take over Rome. Literally pillage it and burn it. That's crazy. But it was the culmination of centuries of internal moral and social rot that got it to the point where it was ripe for that kind of destruction. A few weeks ago, I said that no empire has ever been truly conquered from an outside force. Jesus is claiming that as a spiritual truth here. Empires don't get conquered from the outside. Empires conquer themselves. Evil ultimately devours itself in its quest to overthrow God. And if you and I are seeking to pull God out of the center of parts of our lives and live them on our own, we need to come to a very, very sobering realization. It will devour us. It will. Whether that's on a personal level, or on a city level, or on a national level, or on a global level, evil devours itself. It eats its own tail. That's why Babylon's name is the Lord confounds. Babylon never gets the reality that when you pull God out of the center, everything falls apart. And so John watches with awe and wonder as the destruction of Babylon comes not from the outside, but from the inside as her kings turn on her like sharks and bloodlust and tear her to pieces. As Babylon falls, we get introduced to chapter 18, which is a very, it's, it's a strange song. It's the best way I know how to put it. It is a lament of sorts, but it's a punk kind of lament. We watch as the heavens declare God's righteousness and justice over the destruction of the empire. We watch as the saints actually celebrate that destruction. And I need to be very, very clear. The saints that are at the altar celebrate that destruction not out of some misguided vengeance, not out of some misguided hatred, but in relief that their martyrdom, their witness for Jesus has been vindicated by God. The heavenly court has reached its verdict in their favor, condemning the shed of their innocent blood as faithful witnesses as they lived and they lived under pressure and they stayed faithful and they stayed faithful even to death for Jesus and refused to get in bed with Babylon. And the destruction is the handing down of the sentencing. So you see that happening in this song in chapter 18. You also see this. There is a wailing in the mourning of those around the world who put their trust in the power of Babylon. Go look at, um, go look at Mark's picture of the distressed merchant to give you an idea of what that looks like out on, the, um, out on the poster boards out in the foyer of what we did in class this morning. It's great. We have lots of good artists here. I won't make any as to whether you're one of them or not, but I just, we have good artists here. All right. Um, but there's this, this morning, they thought that she would never fall. They thought she was a sure bet. And the destruction happened so quickly that everybody's just kind of staggering around in the shock of the aftermath. John keeps using this, this phrase one hour, only one hour in only one hour. It's like nobody sees it coming. And then it just 
It's there. And how often is it like that? The things that we put our trust and our faith in, they, like we put our trust and faith in them way longer than we should have. And we, we rationalize and we ignore and we deny and we do whatever while everything's crumbling around us. And then we're surprised when the sinner just, bleh, just gives out. But there's something else here, and I think it's important for us to see this too. We see a real, true lament from John. He walks like a poet around in the ruins of Babylon. And he looks at the destruction. And he feels the weight of the loss. And he sings God's victory, but he sings it with a heavy heart. I think it's really important for us to see that. I think it's really important for us to hear that. I mean, think about the Roman Empire. Think about all the things from the Roman Empire that we admire even today. Artwork, architecture, philosophy, literature, like... Think about from every empire. There are some really, really beautiful things. And I think, we need to, I think we need to be careful because sometimes we get this idea that human culture is just something for the Christian to turn their nose up at in disgust. It is not that simple. It is not as simple as just going the way of the culture or becoming Amish or whatever you, or what have you, okay? Even today, our world is doing incredible things, amazing things, unimaginable things with all of the resources and talent and intellect and passion that God has just continued to freely like pour out on our world. Yeah, there's some really terrible things going on too, but there's some really beautiful things going on too. And the realization is is that we're in Babylon though. And we're still trying to do all these great things while removing God from the equation. And it will not hold. And as Christians, I think our call is to truly lament that. Not just standing on the sidelines and sticking our tongue out at a culture that stumbles and falls. But to like really lament that and actually do something about it. To actually move in and try to redeem those things in the name of the Redeemer. And so what are we supposed to do with all this? Okay, what is the challenge to the church? This is the, this is the application part of the sermon, all right? Okay? Again, I think it's very simple when you boil it down. You've got two things. Two charges that come in in this passage, okay? You look at 18... Chapter 18, verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Come out of her. What does that mean? One, it's not, it's not necessarily a geographical call because, again, you're writing to churches in Turkey about Rome. So they're not even physically in Rome, so it's not that they can physically leave Rome. But it's also not isolationist either, okay? There, there's, there's a mindset that says that the only way to truly be God's is to divorce yourself from everything else around you, 
okay? Uh, where we got the Dead Sea Scrolls is from a community that lived in Qumran. Basically, they just decided that the world was so messed up that they were just going to go out into the desert and they were going to make their own little enclave of a city and that way Jesus would know exactly where to come. They didn't know it was Jesus, just the Messiah. Okay, the Messiah would know exactly where to come when he came back because we were the only holy people around. Simple. And the rest of the world's going to burn. Okay? And now, I mean, that, I hear that a lot. Is that we're supposed to just kind of huddle up and get away from it and, you know, and, and just kind of isolate ourselves and protect ourselves and huddle up in Jesus while the rest of the world burns. That is not what it means to come out of Babylon. It's not. It's a call and a challenge to the church to wake up and realize that we live in Babylon. And it can be anywhere. Because Babylon is a place where God is left out of the equation, where sensuality becomes an overbearing drive, where injustice becomes commonplace, where worship of things and products commands our attention, where violence and power plays are the weapons of choice for conflict resolution and security of freedoms, where deception is accepted, where counterfeit sources of meaning are all over the place. And self-glorification is the norm. Does that sound like anywhere you know? Does that sound familiar to you at all? Here's the thing. Even Jerusalem was Babylon. We brought it up in, we brought it up in class that, oh man, there's a, whole, there's a whole lot of scripture in Jeremiah and Ezekiel especially, but in some other places, where that image of the woman who is the adulteress is applied directly to Jerusalem. And I've got news for you, it doesn't get any better when Jesus comes. I mean, think about this. When Christ and Barabbas stand before Pilate, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, and Pilate is asking them which one should go free, the people choose to liberate the murder and murder the liberator. When Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? And saying more than he even knows that he's saying... Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks a horrible truth, not even realizing the fullness of what he's saying. We have no king but Caesar. Oh, no. Jerusalem can be Babylon, too. We should not think that being religious or morally observant has anything to do with whether we're in bed with Babylon or not. Oh, no. <laughs> There are other words I could use, but we're in church. We're in church, and I'm not gonna. Okay, but but I mean that 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 challenge. That's exactly what come out of her is supposed to do to the church. Because for some of them, like Philadelphia, that have been being faithful, they're like, yes, okay, we're going out where Jesus is. For some of them, like Laodicea, they're going, oh no, oh oh no, this is not what I wanted to hear. This is ruining my Sunday. Okay, and I'm sorry if I ruined your Sunday with that, okay? But, that, but I mean, it's the Bible, okay? The Bible ruined your Sunday, not me. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to be a disciple in the city, isn't it? 
Our allegiance is constantly being tested and our citizenship is constantly under pressure. To which city will we belong? Which identity gets to rule in us? We got to come forth out of the Babylonness of the culture around us and distinguish ourselves for Christ. And that hurts. It's costly. It's not fun. It's purposeful. It's real, but it's not easy and it's not fun. But then the other thing is once we have done that, we have another command, and this is it. Bear witness to the fall of Babylon. Think about your city for a second. Just think about Victoria. Maybe even think about her as a person. Not not Victoria, Victoria. But like, like just, you know. Think about the city of Victoria. Think about all the things that you love about her. Think about all the beautiful things that you enjoy in this city. All the things that are lovely, all the things that are wonderful, all the things that make you say, I love that this is my home. This is amazing. Thank you, God, that I live here. Now walk around your city a little bit and think about all the things that aren't right. Think about all the terrible things, about all the horrible things. Think about the broken things. See, here's the thing. Even if your home, your allegiance, your citizenship is in the New Jerusalem, you still wake up every morning in Babylon. This is where you live. This is your city. We are called to bear witness to the fact that Babylon is always falling, no matter how she tries to distinguish herself. And we're called to bear witness to the beautiful ways that God is at work that people don't realize it, in spite of the fact that they've pulled him out of the equation, that God is still doing amazing things all around this city. And we're called to hold those things high and say, look, that is beautiful, that is God at work. Look at that and glorify. Take glory in that. And we are also called to call out the parts of culture that are beastly and to call them what they are. And say, do not glorify. Do not glory in that. Do not revel in that. You're better than that. We're called to rejoice when God's justice wins, even if in doing so we bring criticism and pain upon ourselves. We are called to love the parts of our culture that uphold God, that bear witness to his beauty and his majesty and redemption, and we are called to lament the ways that beautiful things get corrupted by our Babylonness. And move, but, but not just to sit there and cry about it, to move in the redemptive steps of our Savior to reclaim them. To do. Always, always we bear witness to the message of Jesus. To those around us. She will not stand forever. Come out of her. And into the salvation of the one who loves you. Are we willing to do that? Do we love our city enough to bear witness to her? The beautiful parts and the terrible parts. How much do we love our city? Let's pray together.
And worship team, if you want to come up. Oh, Father, give us a heart for this city. This, this very, very beautiful and yet, and yet very, very messed up place. Just like, just like any place that tries to live without you at the center, Lord. Lord, help us to love the people around us enough to bear witness to your truth. Even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. And Lord, challenge us. Go to the very core of us. Search our hearts and find out if there is any offensive way in us. Lord, how are we living as though Babylon is our home? Help us, Lord. Help us not to be seduced. Help us not to to fall into allegiance with things that are not from you. But Lord, at the same time, help us not to just huddle up and and let the rest of the world fall. You call us to bear witness, and so I pray that you'll show us what that looks like day in and day out. Amen.